Let's pray. Our great Father in heaven, we are excited to be here tonight, back into studying your word when it comes to the, these doctrines of grace. We thank you, Lord, for your great grace, which we've experienced in our own lives, by which we stand, by which we're even here. We pray for a continued grace tonight to help us understand your word and, and learn more about the wonders and, and the marvel of your grace and salvation. And we thank you in advance and just trust you to bless our evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, as we're back tonight, after some time off, at least from this study, we have a study tonight. It, it, it relates, and I'll tell you how it relates shortly, but it's on heathen salvation. Now, that's an archaic word we don't really use anymore. But historically, this term, heathen, has referred to those around the globe who haven't followed one of the Abrahamic religions. That's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And from the perspective of Western Christianity, heathens have been typically just, you know, pagans around the world, the uncultured, the uncivilized people around the world. In the Old Testament, the Jews referred to all the Gentiles as heathens, just the unbelievers, those who are outside God's people. In the New Testament, Christians just viewed the whole pagan world as, as heathens, so to speak. Now, the Jews in the time of Christ had come to hate the heathens, hate those who were outside the people of God. They hated the Gentiles. The Christians in the New Testament, however, had a more favorable view of the pagans, seeing that Christ had commissioned them to take the gospel to them. We have a commission to take the gospel, the good news of Christ, to all the nations of the earth and to bring them in to the church. And the church, after all, what is it but the new covenant people of God that consists of members from every tribe and tongue and people and race? Now, the reason I bring this up, so you have the Great Commission, Christ calling us in the church to take the gospel, take the, the good news of Christ's death and resurrection to all the nations. It's brought up a question ever since, well, really the beginning of the church, and you'll see how it ties into our Doctrines of Grace study. A common question, an important question, you know, what about all the people who have never heard the gospel, and they've never even had a chance to hear the gospel? What about them? What about all those nations, all those tribes, all those heathen people? And I don't say that in a derogatory way, although I think today that word kind of sounds derogatory. Historically, it's just been a term to talk about those who've never heard the gospel. So what about all those people? All those nations, all those tribes, they've never even heard of Christ? I mean, just think of the Native Americans before Columbus. So they're like, they have an ocean in between them. They've never heard of anything about the West or Christianity whatsoever. They've had zero contact with Christianity. So does that mean all the Native Americans, for example, had zero chance of salvation until a missionary showed up? Is that, is that what that means or, or what? It, was it possible for them to be saved? Today, the gospel has spread throughout most of the earth. People at least heard, have heard of Jesus. This question still remains, though. I usually hear this question like this. What about that person in that tribe in Africa who still never heard? What about them? Are, can they be saved? Do they just have to wait for a missionary and they have no chance? And if that's so, like that, that seems unfair. Is God unfair or unjust for not offering salvation to all at least? No, it doesn't seem fair that some people get an offer, some people don't. At least give them a chance, right? So this, you'll see how this relates to the doctrines of grace. Although we don't use the term much anymore, historically these, this, these questions concern the topic of heathen salvation. So that's just the historical term in, in church history, this topic of heathen salvation. And heathen salvation itself is a corollary issue to election and reprobation, which we just finished studying. So if you haven't been with us, we just spent many, many weeks and months studying what the Bible says about election and reprobation. And right on the heels of this, it's only fitting to address this secondary but related issue of heathen salvation, of those who never heard, never had a chance to hear about Jesus. What about them? What does the Bible say about them? That's what we're going to study tonight. Now, that being said, since we've been on a break for about two months studying other things, and we, we took July off, it's been a while. So I, I meant to, and I want to spend a little bit of time up front, just some recap. What's this study about again? Where have we been? Because we're in this for the long haul. It's been a, a good five months of Doctrines of Grace, and there's probably about that much more to come. So overall, we started the study earlier in the year, trying to get to the bottom of this basic question. 
What is God's role and man's role in salvation? What is God's role and man's role in salvation? Is God alone responsible for the work of salvation? Or does God cooperate with man? Does man play a decisive part in his own salvation? Or is salvation just a work of God's grace, a gift of God's grace from start to finish? Does God actually save people or does he merely enable people to save themselves? How much human effort is really involved in our salvation? How much divine effort is really involved? And related to these questions, who really chooses who? Do we choose God first or does God choose us first? Fundamental questions. And so that, these questions and more we've been trying to answer in this prolonged study on the doctrines of grace. Again, it boils down to just what is God's role and man's role in salvation, according to the Bible. Now, historically, though, Christians have been divided on this issue, uh, pretty, pretty much on two sides, two basic perspectives. The fancy words are monergism and synergism. Monergism, that term that states that the belief that God works alone to bring about salvation. Salvation is God's gift of grace from start to finish. That's monergism. God works alone. Synergism, as you can probably already guess, is the belief that God cooperates with man to bring about his salvation. That God enables people to save themselves. This divide goes all the way back to the early church, as we studied back at the beginning from Augustine and Pelagius to later on Calvin and Arminius. The same divide has existed throughout much of church history. And ever since the time of Calvin and Arminius, these questions, this divide, people have generally aligned themselves under these these two representative heads, these two camps of Calvinism and Arminianism. And I trust you've heard of these before, especially if you've been with us. But since the time of the followers of Calvin and Arminius, this divide, these differences of belief have been categorized in, in five topics, I guess you could say, five, five subjects. So the Armenian view versus the Calvinist view, you have free will or total depravity. You have conditional election or unconditional election. Unlimited atonement versus limited atonement. Obstructible grace versus irresistible grace. Falling from grace versus perseverance of the saints. These five issues and, and both sides, they all have to deal with Uh, do with God's role and man's role in salvation. Those who generally fall under the banner of Calvinism believe that God is completely sovereign in man's salvation. Salvation is entirely a work of God's grace, which is why the, the five points on the Calvinist side, they're often referred to as the doctrines of grace, and hence the title of the study, the doctrines of grace, and typically that the, the Calvinistic side of those five points uh, goes by the acronym TULIP, as you remember, representing each, each of those five points. So to get more precise now, the whole purpose of this study here on Wednesday nights is first to just explore both sides of this divide, to see what both sides actually believe, what they actually teach, and to understand how they represent God's role and man's role in salvation. And then secondly, to dive into scripture and see, well, what does the Bible say? Well, what does the Bible say about God's role, man's role in salvation with each of these five major issues? Now, it's probably not surprising to you, since we are of the Calvinistic persuasion that we do believe in the doctrines of grace. We do believe this is what the Bible teaches, and so it's, that's obviously where we're going to land. However, the purpose of this study is to show you from Scripture why we believe what we believe. It's not just to, to tell you a bunch of stuff and drop it on you, but to, to show you from Scripture why we believe what we believe, at least here at this church. I've encountered so many people on both sides of this long divide who they feel strongly about what they believe, but if challenged, couldn't really tell you why they believe what they believe. They, they couldn't really pin it to Scripture, build their case from Scripture, and some really, maybe they hold to one of the banners, but they actually don't know what they believe. They're, they're just kind of confused or a little bit foggy about it. Maybe they're Calvinist or Arminian because they just grew up that way, or this is the church I go to and, you know, seems right to me. Or maybe they've heard something terrible about the other side. 
But rarely do I find the Christian who can really explain from scriptures. No, this is what I believe. This is why. This is where it clearly is in the word. And you should be able to do that. You should be able to explain from scripture what you believe and why you believe. I mean, don't you think? That sounds pretty reasonable. This is certainly true for the doctrines of grace. And it's so valuable, too, because these issues, that they're meant to radically impact our daily lives, our daily walk. These are very practical. We will get to that at the very end, but these issues are important. Uh, this, this shouldn't divide brother and sister in Christ. You know, both sides uh, can have true believers. It's not necessarily gospel issues on uh, a lot of this stuff. Uh, but at the very least, we just want to cut it straight. We want to get it right and understand, well, what do we believe and why? What, what does the Bible say about God's role and man's role in salvation? So just to finish off this recap, what have we learned so far up to this point? Well, we, so far we've basically covered the first two points. Total depravity, the T, and then the U, unconditional election. We studied at first a great deal about the doctrine of sin. We looked at topics like the fall and original sin to learn how our human condition is affected from birth. And then we studied what the Bible has to say about total depravity and really total inability. And in short, it's, it's not a pretty picture. Countless verses testify that before salvation, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have a will, yes, but far from our will being described as free in Scripture, our will is explicitly described as bound, bound to sin and to Satan. Accordingly, because of our sin condition, we're, we're not free to choose God because we don't have the ability to choose God. We're, we're dead in sin. We've lost the ability to do good, which includes choosing God. And so this foundation of, of sin and the sin problem, how it's affected our human condition, it's really critical. You have to really understand the sin problem and the sin condition of man if you're going to try and understand the sin solution and grace, and why grace is needed. And already, total depravity informs us that if God didn't intervene, if God didn't choose to save some, none would be saved. On their own, none would come to God. None can choose God. None want to choose God. Romans 3.10, there's none who seeks God, not even one, apart from God intervening. This naturally leads into a discussion of election, which was our second major topic. We studied what the Bible says about God's sovereignty in general. He's a, a comprehensively sovereign God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we studied what the Bible says about election in general as well. The fact of election is just inescapable in Scripture. In fact, a lot of people are surprised to hear this, but both Calvinists and Arminians believe in election. Both sides of this debate believe in election. It's just so clearly taught in Scripture. Both sides affirm alongside Scripture that God, before creation, chose some people for salvation, not all. Both sides believe that, actually. The difference comes down to how God made that choice before the foundation of the world. And so the divide is over conditional election versus unconditional election. It's not between election and no election. Some are surprised. Both believe in election. It's just, is it conditional or unconditional? Armenians believe in conditional election, where God chooses the elect, but he does so through divine foreknowledge. God, before creation, he looked forward into time to see who would choose him of their own free will. And then God chose them or elected them in, in response. We spent a lot of time looking at this and Finding this concept, it's never taught in Scripture, never even hinted at in Scripture. The whole notion of conditional election has so many fatal flaws and just falls dead in the water. Rather, Scripture could not be clearer that God chooses people, not according to our will, but according, according to his own will. God's election is unconditional, meaning it's not conditioned on anything foreseen in man or otherwise. God's choice of the elect is made per his own will. And we covered all that in many lengthy lessons, so we're not going to take it any further than that and rehash it. We've, we've, spent, we've done our due diligence when it comes to depravity and election. 
We capped it off last time, although this was months ago now, with lesson number 12 on reprobation, which just concerns God's relationship with the unelect. Reprobation concerns God's act of just passing over the unelect. He doesn't choose them for damnation. He merely just passes them over and leaves them to their own devices. All right, we'll leave it there. I just summarized for you about five months of teaching. So if you, if you weren't here or you just want to get a refresher, it is all up on the website with the PDFs included. So you can go and listen to many hours worth of all that teaching if you want. For now, though, we are going to move on. And pretty soon we're going to get to the third major topic, which is the L in TULIP, which stands for limited atonement, if you've heard of that before. In contrast to unlimited atonement, that's a, that's a big one. But first... There are a few, like I said, corollary issues that I've had in my mind that I want to include in this study, and they just fit best right here, right in between election and atonement. They're going to serve as a good transition between these two topics. And the first issue is heathen salvation, which I already addressed. We'll talk about that tonight. The second issue is infant salvation, and that will be next week. Pretty interesting issues, of course. And Well, that said, tonight, let's just get into this study. I think hopefully you're caught up to speed at least sufficiently. We're going to spend the rest of our time just focusing on this lesson of heathen salvation. And I'll tell you again, by the way, at the outset, although we've changed venues, we're now in the sanctuary, a little more formal. I'm standing up behind a pulpit instead of sitting down. Wednesday nights is not meant to be that formal, so you guys can always throw up a hand, make a comment, ask a question, anytime, just a reminder, as most of you already know. All right, let's get into heathen salvation. And just start off with some questions. Again, what is the fate of those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus? Can they be saved? Do they even have the potential of being saved? Because I think we all know the Bible teaches, okay, Jesus, he's the only way of salvation. We all affirm that. But is it even possible somehow for someone to be saved who's never heard of Jesus and they never will? They will die and they'll never hear anything about Jesus. Can they be saved? And if not, if it's not possible for such a person to be saved, wouldn't that be unfair or unjust of God? How could God condemn someone who never even had a chance to believe and be saved, who never even had an opportunity to hear the gospel? These are important questions because they're not hypothetical. It's estimated that half of the globe presently still hasn't heard of Jesus, hasn't heard the gospel. We're talking billions of people unreached. I mean, think of the vastness of China, still largely unreached, India, Southeast Asia. Just, we can't take it for granted in America, but worldwide there's still lots and lots of people. And then historically, just think back before the modern missions movement, the millions if not billions of people and people groups around the world, cultures and civilizations that have come and gone and never heard the gospel, never heard anything. Again, think of North and South America before colonization. No inkling of the gospel. What happened to them? Is that, did they have a chance? Is that fair? These are important questions. They're common questions. So let's see if we can provide some biblical answers and see what the Bible says about this. I'm not going to use questions to frame this discussion. So you have that in your little brief handout, just some questions we'll use to frame the discussion. And first we'll ask, are heathens really lost? And again, it's, a, it's kind of a weird term. It's archaic. We don't use it today. But there's really not a better term, I guess, to talk about people who've never heard the gospel. So that's, all, that's the only way we're using that term. Again, it's not meant to be disparaging. It's just people who've never heard. Are they really lost? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, just refer back to all of our studies on the fall, on original sin, on total depravity, total inability. Sin is a universal problem. It doesn't matter where you live or when you live, when you were born, what culture, whether you heard the gospel or not, you're still a sinner. You're born in sin. The whole race fell when Adam fell. All are born as sinners, already in a state of rebellion against God. And everyone is born lost. doesn't matter where you live or when. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Or you can grab a pew Bible if you want. Romans chapter 2. We'll look at just a few verses. Romans 2. And I'll mention all people are accountable to God's law in one form or another. Now, Israel alone 
was accountable to the law of Moses, which was a, a much more detailed expression of God's will. But Romans teaches us how even Gentiles are accountable to God's universal law, which is written on our hearts, and it's policed by the conscience. God has written his universal law on the hearts of all. Romans 2, look at verse 12 if you're there. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's Gentiles. They've sinned without the law. They're still going to perish without the law. And law is capital L, law of Moses. He says, And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Verse 14, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In that, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. We know there's a day when all will be judged. Scripture teaches men are judged according to their deeds. They are held accountable to the light they received. So ancient Jews, for example, they're going to be held accountable to the law of Moses, which is much bigger, much more stringent, actually, a stricter judgment for them. Whereas Gentiles will be held accountable to the law of God written in their hearts, policed by the conscience, which consists of God's basic moral law, which happens to be revealed in Scripture. That being said, all people fall short of God's law, one form or another. All people fall short of God's standard of righteousness. And so in chapter 3, Paul convicts Jews and Gentiles, Jews and heathens, we might say. Everyone is convicted under sin. That's what chapter 3 is all about. There's none righteous, not even one, verse 10. None who understands. There's none who seeks God, verse 11. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And actually in the context, when he says all, he means Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction. Jew, people of God, heathen, all are sinners. So, heathens, are they they sinners? Yes. Are they therefore justly going to be judged for their sin like all people? Well, yes. I mean, they're, they're sinners just like everyone else. The fact that they haven't heard about Jesus has nothing to do with whether or not they're a sinner. The wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. So they, they face the same condemnation everybody faces because of sin. And it just has nothing to do with whether or not they've heard the gospel. They're, they're going to be judged for their sin. So at this point, actually, all Christians are in agreement. Both sides, everybody agrees so far that all people are in need of salvation. Everybody needs salvation. Everyone is lost, the whole world. Whether you're in a culture, a civilized culture, or a heathen, whatever, everyone needs the same salvation. And all Christians would agree that if a heathen came to believe in Jesus, he would certainly be saved. But here's the next question then. Is there salvation outside of Christ? Is there salvation outside of Christ? And here's an interesting dilemma Arminians find themselves in. And when it comes to heathen salvation, it's, a, it's a, like I said, a historical topic. Wesley wrote about it. Historically, Arminians have been in quite a bind. Because based on what they teach when it comes to these issues, they teach that Jesus died for all people and that the benefits of his death are applied to all people. They further teach that God has already given all people sufficient grace to be saved, prevenient grace. Everybody has grace enabling them to believe. So basically, God has provided atonement for all people, forgiveness for all people, and grace for all people. God gave that to everybody in the same way. So all people have to do to be saved is just believe in Jesus of their own free will. That's all they have to do. Believe in Jesus of their own free will. However, the vast majority of people have never even had an opportunity to believe in Jesus. They've never even heard of them. So they miss out on God's most gracious gift. This is especially contradictory for Arminians who they believe that Jesus actually made atonement for the sins of the unelect. So it's like maybe you're a super millionaire and you want to bless someone, a friend of yours, so you buy them a house paid in full, 
just they can move in. It's in their name. They're going to own it. Just what a huge blessing. What a head start you're going to give them. And you buy it for them, and then you never tell them about it. It kind of defeats the purpose. That seems quite, that's, that's kind of contradictory there. What's the point of that? And so for the Arminian, they have to face this dilemma that God went to such great lengths to save everyone, not just the elect, but everyone, because God desires all to be saved, right? So God sent Jesus for all. Jesus died for all. Jesus paid for the sins of all. God gave sufficient grace to all. But then God stopped short of giving everyone the same chance to hear. At least give everyone an equal chance. Why didn't God do that? If God went to such great lengths to save everybody because he, he so desperately wants all people to be saved, why would he stop short of like the last domino that needs to fall to just give everyone salvation? Why would he not enable, through his providence, everybody to hear the gospel? Revelation talks about in the tribulation an angel in heaven will preach the gospel to the world. So God could have done it supernaturally, just preach the gospel to all, at least enable everyone of their own free will to believe or not. Why didn't he do that? It is quite a difficulty for their position. And historically, it's led some Arminians to suggest that maybe people can be saved without believing in Jesus. In other words, you know, maybe the heathen who never hears about Jesus can still be saved apart from special revelation they can be saved just by heeding what is known about God in general revelation. They can look to the stars and understand there's a God and that belief in God will save them. And in support, they'll often give the example of Cornelius in Acts 10. This was a Gentile centurion who was not in the people of God per se, but it said he feared God and he sought after God and God accepted him even though he hadn't heard the gospel. And they will point to him in support. But this really is a, a false view. It's not true. General revelation cannot save. There's another sub-question you have here. Can general revelation save? What do we mean by general revelation? Well, on your own, just read Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. It's basically God has left uh, a knowledge of himself, an impression of himself in, in creation. I mean, you look at the stars, and it's evident Someone made that, and this is God's fingerprints all over creation. He's made the knowledge of him evident to us, both externally and internally, both through creation and through conscience. All people have the knowledge of God. But turn to Romans 1. You're already in Romans. Turn to Romans 1, verse 18. Scripture teaches here and elsewhere that general revelation... The knowledge of God that comes through creation, it's only sufficient to condemn. It's not sufficient to save. The knowledge of God in Revelation is only sufficient to condemn people. It's not sufficient to save. Look at one, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because... That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. For even though they knew God, <clears throat> they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And he continues... What does general revelation do? It, it does expose people to the reality of God, the truth of God. But man, after the fall and his rebellion, has already rejected the light of general revelation. And now all it does is condemn people. That people know better that there's a God whom they should seek and serve, but they don't. They seek and serve themselves. This is what the whole book of Romans is about. That general revelation, he starts his course off that this general revelation, it, all it does is condemn the heathen world. What do they really need to be saved? They need special revelation. And back it up to chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. What's Romans all about? <clears throat> he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. People need the gospel. This is why there is a gospel. This is why we are commissioned to 
preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. We need a, a special revelation. Not only do we need an atonement, Christ provided that, but we, we need to hear about that because we're saved by faith in this special revelation, the good news of Christ. So Romans is all about. And so our next point, even more specific, special revelation of Jesus is needed for salvation after the cross. <clears throat> special revelation of Jesus is needed for salvation after the cross. The first point here, Christ is the only Savior. You know some of these verses, John fourteen six. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's pretty explicit. He, close, he closes every door except his. And the only way to God is through him, Jesus, the Son. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only mediator. He's the only high priest. Hebrews 9.26 mentions he's the only sacrifice for sin. So it's crystal clear he's the only Savior. And then secondly, we'll point out faith in this Savior is required for salvation. Faith in Jesus is required for salvation. And hence, obviously, knowledge of Jesus is required for salvation. You can't have faith in what you don't know about. You need to know about Jesus to be saved. And this is the explicit teaching of Scripture. John three thirty six. Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What's the kicker for eternal life? Believing in the Son. You must believe in Jesus. John 10, 9, Jesus, says, I, uh, Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved. Again, similar to John 14, 6, Christ closes all doors but himself, and you must pass through him by faith to be saved. Believe in him and him alone. Acts 4.12, Peter, after preaching a second time, straight out makes it explicit in Acts 4.12. Peter preaches, he says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That sounds pretty clear to me. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10, though, makes it crystal clear. I'm keeping you in Romans. I'm making it easy on you. Turn to Romans 10. Romans chapter 10 now. He's making a point in this chapter. You know, we're saved by faith. The righteousness which comes from God that saves us comes to us on the basis of faith. And... This, this, this salvation by faith, it doesn't require some monumental feat. You don't need to go on some crazy pilgrimage or go to the ends of the earth. Salvation is not far away, is his point. Salvation is near. How near? It's in your mouth. You just have to confess and believe. So look at verse 8. He says, what does it say? Meaning the righteousness of faith. It says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Righteousness by faith, it's, it's near you. It's as close as your mouth and your heart. You just need to believe in Jesus, the risen Savior. Confess him, believe in him, and you will be saved. Obviously, specific content in Christ and Christ risen. The gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, is Christ dead, buried, risen for the payment of our sins. So the content is clear. But look, keep going though. Verse 11. He says, For scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is great news, and this has always been true. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's always been true. Salvation by grace through faith, Old and New Testaments. Jew and Greek, God shows no partiality. Whoever will call on his name will be saved. But the question is, who's going to do that? Or how can people do that if they don't know 
the name of the Lord. How can people believe in Jesus if they don't never heard about him? And that's exactly what he says next. Look at verse 14. He says, though, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. People need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, to cry out to Jesus in mercy, to just to forgive them, to, to save them. That, that's how we're saved, by grace through faith. But his whole point here is, although it's open to all, Jew and Greek, they have to hear and they have to believe. And if, if that's going to happen, someone's got to be sent to preach the word, which, by the way, back in verse 8, the word of faith, which we are preaching. This is why Paul went to the ends of the earth to take the gospel, because they have to hear. If they don't hear, they, they can't believe, and they can't be saved. People need not just general revelation, but special revelation, the knowledge of Christ to be saved. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not creation. It's not the stars. It's not the trees that can show you God exists, makes you accountable to him for the knowledge of God, but there's no gospel in creation. We need the message of the cross, God's gospel for salvation. Now, before we kind of throw in our our answer here, another question pops up from Arminians, namely, is there a second chance to believe after death? It's in your notes there. Is there a second chance to believe after death? Because going back to the Arminian dilemma, you know, God wants to save all, but the vast majority never even hear of Jesus. So some posit, well, maybe people can be saved without hearing Jesus. That's just not what the Bible teaches. Others, to try and get out of this dilemma, have suggested, well, maybe there will be a future offer of the gospel right before judgment. Like a, a second chance for everyone to believe, a final chance. After you die, there's a future probation and you have a chance to believe. And the only response to that is just simply nothing in Scripture about that whatsoever. That's not mentioned, that's not hinted, not alluded to. To the contrary, Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. And Scripture is crystal clear. This explains the urgency of believing you need to believe today in the urgency of evangelism. And so this whole idea of a second chance is simply just not taught anywhere in Scripture. At the end of the day, Arminians, with their belief in, in a universal atonement and prevenient grace, they have a really hard time actually explaining the condition of heathen salvation, of heathens. That God wants to save them, right? He so desperately wants to save them, but they just never hear. And they, they can't be saved without hearing. And so the only way out to keep their system alive is to buy into one of these two falsehoods that people can be saved apart from Jesus or people will get a second chance after death. But both aren't taught in Scripture. And ironically, both of those solutions destroy all motivation for world evangelism. I mean, think about it. If that tribe in Africa, if you're telling me they have enough light to be saved from just the stars, from general revelation... Do we really need to go preach to them? Like, we could save a lot of money. We don't have to go to the ends of the earth. You know, yeah, your neighbor, they're right next to you. But do we really need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth if they can be saved? Or if there's a second chance, there's that second chance when they're in God's presence is going to be way more convincing than my gospel presentation. So do I really need to go? It just destroys all motivation for world evangelism. And really it just exposes some of the inconsistencies of the system that start to come out when you get into the nitty-gritty questions like this. But we're not quite done. On the flip side, we still have to address and answer the question. Next question. Well, okay then. Is God unfair or unjust to condemn those who've not heard the gospel? People feel this way. It maybe tugs on their heartstrings from a human sense. Like It feels unfair, like they never had a chance. But understand, God is not unfair or unjust in condemning, well, first off, anyone. Right? God is not unjust or unfair in condemning anyone because all deserve condemnation. If you really believe that in Scripture, you believe Scripture, you all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, all deserve condemnation. He's not unjust or unfair for condemning anyone, let alone those who have not heard the gospel. Why would this make God unjust? 
Remember, why are people judged? Because they're sinners. People are not judged because, well, they had an opportunity to believe, but they didn't take it. No, they're judged because they sinned against a holy God. If God sentenced someone to hell because they didn't believe the gospel, and yet they had no opportunity, then you might be able to make a case he was unfair. But that's not the case in scripture. It repeatedly says all are judged for their deeds, for their acts of rebellion, for their sins. And so if God sentences people to hell simply for their own sins, a just and righteous judgment, it it makes no difference whether they heard the gospel or not. That's not why they're being judged. So it has nothing to do with his fairness in that regard. And furthermore, God is under no obligation to save all people or even to offer salvation to all people. He's had no obligation to offer the gift to anybody. This comes only from a warped sense of human fairness. Just remember, salvation is by grace, and grace, by definition, is undeserved. If it's deserved, if you're entitled to it, it's no longer grace. Do you believe salvation is by grace? Then, Then no one's entitled. No one deserves it. That's the whole point. This is why we glorify God for his grace. Even the offer of salvation is by grace. God is under no obligation to even offer salvation to anyone. If God offered salvation to zero people, he would be doing nothing wrong. He would still be perfectly fair, perfectly just. He has done them no wrong. They're not entitled to anything except judgment. The only thing they deserve is judgment. If, they get, if anyone gets anything better, it's simply a marvel of God's grace. Mankind has already rejected the light of general revelation, and God is under no obligation to give anyone any more light. But to this, some might say, well, okay, but since God decided to offer salvation to some people, doesn't that like obligate him to offer it to everybody then? Just, you know, he's got to be fair to everybody. But, but really, why? This response, I think, comes from people in our extremely entitled and self-important generation. This is the generation that has said, you know, if you give a trophy to the winning team, you've got to give trophies to everybody else so no one feels left out. Or if you've got to bring cookies to school for just your friends, you've got to bring cookies for everybody so no one's left out. It's not fair. That may be gracious, but has nothing to do with fairness. By definition, a gift giver is under no obligations to give out gifts. That's the definition of a gift. If he chooses to give one person a gift and not the person next to him, he's done no wrong. It places him under no obligation to give the same gift equally to all people. It's just a warped sense of human fairness. There's really, that is gracious, but it has nothing to do with fairness or justice. It's just God is free to do what he wants with that which is his. God is free to do what he wants with that which is his. His gift of salvation. He unconditionally gives to those whom he wills. We learned that unconditional election. And as we, we spent a huge amount of time studying how God is not unfair or unjust in doing so. And you can get that on our website. Now read on your own time, Matthew 20, the parable of, of the vineyard workers. They work unequal amounts of time, yet they're all paid the same wage. Remember that one? And they complain, some guys complain, and, and, and the parable, the, the owner says... Is it not lawful for me to do what I want with what is my own? Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? And Christ's teaching on the nature of God's grace in salvation. He's free to give as as he wants to give. It's a gift. That's the whole point. There's no obligation, no entitlement whatsoever. So if everybody deserved salvation and God withheld it from some people, then he would be unfair and unjust. But if everybody deserves condemnation... Nobody deserves salvation, and anybody receives it, it's just a marvel of God's grace and mercy, and that's what Scripture teaches. And so to wrap it up, knowing what we know about God's unconditional election, we can safely say that if any heathen truly sought God, God would provide the special revelation needed for them to be saved. If any heathen truly saw after God, God would provide the special revelation needed for them to be saved. Unlike Arminians, we believe that God is sovereign both over the means and the ends of salvation. And we know that if anyone is to truly call in the name of the Lord to be saved, 
It already tells you that God is he's already doing a work in their hearts to draw them to himself. And God would surely provide the means for that person to be saved. Namely, the special revelation of Jesus. How does this special revelation come? Well, most often it's through ordinary means. The category we call ordinary means, that's preaching, missionaries, witnessing to your neighbor, worldwide evangelism. What's ironic is the text that many Arminians use to support their notion, actually it confirms that when someone truly seeks the Lord, God will provide the means for their salvation. Think back to Cornelius, this random Gentile who fears God. He's heard of the God of the Jews. He fears God. He, he seeks this God. And he is the seeker. He is seeking after God. But interestingly, what does God do? In, re- in response to this seeker, so to speak, and God has already done a work in Cornelius' heart at this point, God ensured that Peter went to Cornelius to preach the gospel that which he could be truly saved. God sovereignly provided the means. Here was this Gentile seeking the Lord, and what do you know? God sovereignly provided the means for him to hear the gospel and be saved. And it's for this reason, it's actually been Calvinists who have led the charge in world evangelism, taking seriously the call to take the gospel into all the earth. Because like Romans 10 says, how will they believe and be saved without a preacher? Someone's got to be sent. We have to go. This is why we have to go. We know God, we know God is sovereign in salvation. We leave that to him. He tells us our part, take it to all the earth. And that's what we're going to do. We just take seriously the great commission. And uh, if we don't, they, they won't be saved. Now, in addition, I will point out, we can't rule out God giving direct revelation to some people in extraordinary means. Namely, like visions and dreams. What I mean here is, we typically think of God giving his special revelation, the gospel, through like a preacher or a gospel tract or a Bible copy. But is it possible that, you know, God decided to save an ancient Eskimo by just directly revealing himself to the Eskimo and giving him some divine special revelation that he might be saved? Yeah, I don't see why that's not that's not at least possible. There's no evidence of this. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us God typically operates like this. That being said, we do have the example of Melchizedek from the Old Testament. This was a Gentile who truly knew the true God. There was no written revelation at the time. And God had clearly, directly revealed himself to Melchizedek somehow, whether a vision or a dream or some form of direct revelation. So it's possible. All we can say is, you know, that the person in the tribe of Africa who's never heard the gospel and will die without ever hearing about Christianity, if God so willed, he could directly reveal himself for that person to be saved. Special revelation is needed. That God would have to miraculously intervene. At the very least, though, we can't say this. Scripture does give us every reason to believe that God works in this age through ordinary means. This is why he's told us to preach the gospel, to go into all the world. Because he, he chooses, as, as far as we know, to use ordinary means, the preaching of the gospel. So it's at least pointing out, I guess, technically it's possible. But you know, for us, we're going to just take seriously the call to preach the gospel, take the gospel into all the world, that they might hear and be saved. Just a final bonus question here. It's not in your notes, but somewhat as a final question to ask, how can there be saved people from every nation in heaven if countless people groups have gone extinct, never hearing the gospel? Look, it's true. Revelation 7-9, for example, mentions in heaven people from every nation and tribe and tongue standing before the Lord. Every people group is represented in the kingdom, in the eternal kingdom. That's true. So some would ask about heathen salvation. Well, okay, but if they need a if they need the gospel to be saved, what about those people groups? They've, they've already gone extinct and they never heard. Well, to this, most Calvinists would say that, again, it's, it's technically possible God reached some of these people groups through direct special revelation. But most Calvinists believe that unreached people groups will be represented in the kingdom of God through infant salvation. Through infant salvation. And that 
is your cliffhanger for next week. You have to come back next week to find out more about that. So that'll do it for tonight when it comes to this interesting corollary topic of, of heathen salvation. For us, our takeaway is, look, all must hear the gospel to be saved. The gospel is God's power and God's means for salvation. And so this is meant to light a fire in us that we need to go in your own lives, in your own neighborhood, to the degree that you can go, go. Go wherever you can and preach this gospel that some might be saved by God's grace. We leave that up to him. That's, it's his prerogative. It's his gift. Well, here he calls us to serve as being the means. And so let's, let's be the instruments in the Redeemer's hands. With that, I'll pray for us in our time tonight. Lord, we thank you for, for the gospel of Christ you were under no obligation to even provide atonement. We in humanity, we all fell in Adam. We're born sinners. We, we live out sin. We're all in rebellion against you. We were at least all have sinned, and, and that was once us, hating you, hating your ways in our flesh. And Lord, you would have been just to let everyone simply be condemned to pay for their sins. You would have been perfectly fair and just to do so, and and the angels would have magnified you for that justice, Lord. But in in your mercy and grace and love, you first made an atonement, made a provision where we could be saved, and then you give that gift to those whom you will. We praise you for this, Lord. This is all just a mercy and a marvel of your your grace, and we will exalt you for your grace, Lord. We know in Scripture you've, you've actually saved us that we would sing the praises of, of your grace for all eternity. And we're going to do that now as well, Lord. We thank you for just the wonders of your grace in saving us. We cannot enter your mind or know your thoughts. It is your will, Lord, and we say your will be done. But at the same time, you call us to take this gospel of mercy to all the nations, and I pray we just take that more seriously. This is, this is our legitimate call to preach to all that all might be saved. We trust you, Lord, to do your part and when we take seriously our part in this as well. We thank you for this lesson and this time. Bless us tonight, and may we go and and live out this gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.